0: welcome to game breaking feature of the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development my name is steven bennett and in this episode we're going to be talking about karma and morality systems save the village destroy the village sometimes decisions in video games can be hard to help me figure out the right thing to do as a man who's a karma karma karma, karma oh. chameleon it's my good friend jared <laughs> bruner
1: jared how you doing man Excellent. That was that was fantastic. Did you like my Did you like my interpretations of the the Boy George lyrics? I did. It was very good. And it's not what you it wrote down. Like, I really, so I it really, me... William Shatnered the hell out of that. Huh? You did a great job. <laughs> it's very. I, I could see the artistic intent behind that. Perfect. Perfect. You really put yourself into it.
0: Now, Jared. Yeah. Congratulations. We've been doing this two years now. We oh shit. Have we? Two years. We've been. We've been. Un- Annoying people with the sounds of our voices <laughs> Fantastic
1: Well, to, to be fair, people don't come here for our voices
0: No, I. yeah, you know what they
1: come here for, right? Tell me
0: Our amazing guests, and today is no exception We have a great guest, he's the author of the blog Stomp And a developer with Arbitrary Metric, the team behind Paratopic Please welcome to the show, Doc Burford Doc, welcome to the show, man, how you doing? I'm doing okay, thanks for having me Of course, man, thank you so much for being here I've been following you online on Twitter for a long time I love most of your posts about game design, all that stuff. So it's it's honestly it's an honor to have you on the show finally. Tell me about your blog. Tell me about Stomp Blog. What is it?
2: Well, uh, most people who know me actually probably know me from the work I do for Kotaku, IGN, US Gamer, all that stuff, right? I, I write about game design for those sites. Stomp was meant as a means of, shall we say, more reliable income. It's a Patreon supported blog. Uh, you know, people who don- donate X amount of money get to ask me which games to write about, and then I attempt to write about those games as best I can. Uh, Sometimes I'm very late on those, because I get distracted easily. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's very hard to focus on any one one given game for me, but I I try to be interesting every month. Um, I would say Stomp is the place where I post the things I probably couldn't post anywhere else. Like what? Well, let's see. Uh, You know, I I did an essay on Walking Sims uh, a while ago, and my editor for a certain magazine, I won't name it, but for a specific games magazine, uh, loved it, and then somebody above him read the piece, did not like that it was reporting on Walking Sims in a negative light. And It wasn't really; it wasn't that I was being negative. I was just describing how different people perceive the genre, and some people do it negatively, and so I I explored why why they might feel that way. I think Walking Sim
0: itself has a certain connotation, like even just the term.
2: I grew up with flight simulators, so to me it's affectionate, but I know that some people perceive it as a negative, but it is the name, right? It's just like mm-hmm. RPG is not a great term for what JRPGs are, but somebody named them RPGs at one point, and so now we have a completely different conception of what RPGs are from one half of the mm-hmm. world. It's and it's So names are never perfect, right? But... Whatever the case was, I wrote about this thing, and my editor liked it. My editor edited it. Um, it seemed like everything was good, and then this this editor, who I, I don't know their name, uh, they got so they were so upset about it. They called me amateurish, terrible, all this other stuff, which I've never seen in, in all the years I've written about video games for Kotaku, IGN, all these you know big sites. Right, mm-hmm. I've never had anyone belittle my writing. I've had some editors say, oh, this isn't working. What if we change it and we do and it gets better, right?
1: That's how most of the professional world works, usually.
2: Right, right. I've never had anyone belittle me like this and also to remain anonymous. So it was a really strange experience to have. And so, you know, I took that post and I published it on my blog um, a while later because they didn't, I don't think they paid me for it. Uh, Like, they got in like, oh, this is terrible. Cancel this guy or whatever, so. You know, I put that on the blog, but sometimes I don't, sometimes it's, it's weirder stuff, right? Sometimes it's just more esoteric stuff. You know, generally when I'm pitching something to a big site, it's really focused. When I am working on my own kind of personal theory crafting, there's a lot of dot connecting that goes on, there's a lot of exploration. So I talk about weird stuff. Like, I think I talked about, you know, dramatics in game design. That's not really something that you would want to explore, maybe on a website that's consumer-focused. It's probably something you talk about in academia, but academia is really dry so you know it's the stuff that doesn't fit. It's the hopefully interesting stuff that doesn't go anywhere else.
0: For, for anyone listening to this, I will definitely encourage you to go check out Doc's blog because I'm guessing that if, if someone's listening to this this show, they're interested in game design and we're on this show we're sort of the same way like we talk about all kinds of stuff. So do go go check out the blog because I, I guarantee you'll find something of interest there. Let's talk a little bit about your game, Paratopic. We were just talking to you before we started recording. You won an award at GDC, man, for for Paratopic. Congratulations!
2: Yeah, that was uh, so much of that is I got to give huge props to my guy Chris. Chris Brown is this incredible dude in the UK that I met playing Payday Two, and way back in the day, he was like, "Yeah, I'm going to be a sound designer for video games." So you know, I just I had him in the back of my mind, right? And we, we tried to work on some indie stuff over the years, but. When I was working on Paratopic, you know, I came up with this crazy game. And I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. Uh, I roped my friend Jess into helping me build it. So she ended up um, doing a lot of, like, the actual, you know, art for the game and stuff. You know, level design. It
1: has a really unique look to it.
2: Yeah, yeah. She, that's so much of that is Jess. But the award we won specifically was for sound design. Excellence in sound design. And uh, it's, I knew Chris was right for the project. I've heard his work. I like his work, and I knew he had to be the guy for the game. And so I, I pushed really hard to get him on board. He was amazing, and so we won an we won an award for uh, excellence in uh, sound design. For for people who aren't
0: familiar with Paratopic, h- how would you describe it briefly to them?
2: Um, hmm. <laughs> Perfect. We'll leave it I'm there. Try, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think how to describe it. Right. <laughs> it was the game that I sat there for years and I was like I don't like walking sims. Why don't I like walking sims? How can I make an interesting walking sim? What what would a walking sim from me look like? And that's what this is. This is ultimately, I think, a walking sim that could not have come from anyone else. Which isn't to say it was just me, right? Cuz three people made the game. But when I conceived the game and when I brought it to my friends, it was very much a I have some very specific goals for this game I want to accomplish. I want to fix all the problems I see in walking sims. So you could say this is sort of an anti-walking sim.
0: And I had seen, you had written an article about that. I was reading, in what way do you see it as an anti-walking sim? Like, what is it that's pushing back against the, um, I guess, the traditional norms of walking sims?
2: So that, that article that I mentioned earlier that upset the uh, editor at that one magazine mm-hmm. uh, was about, was this. It was actually, oh, okay. uh, that's part of the reason I made this game was because I was pissed off at this anonymous editor.
1: that's the best motivation to make a game i've ever heard
2: i hope they realize you know that i was right but um (laughs) it's incredibly petty right incredibly petty no but like way back in the day this mod came out for half-life 2 called dear esther and as somebody who's played lots of mods over the years it's always fun to play with experimental and interesting things then the chinese room had this crazy idea that they could do this commercially And they made a a commercial version of Dear Esther, which made a ton of money really quickly. And it was gorgeous. I think the art designer on that was like one of the guys who did uh, Mirror's Edge originally or something. I don't remember all the details, but like incredibly skilled artist working on that game. Game looks amazing. Game has a really good soundtrack, an incredible sense of presence. But all you do is walk and listen to someone talk. And in real life, walking is a very active process, your entire body is part of that process. Thing. In a game, all you're doing is holding down W or forward on the stick if you're using a controller, right? You know, maybe you're using your mouse a little bit to look around, but in a game, you're not really that active in walking. And as somebody who has ADHD, walking seems incredibly boring because you're not participating in an experience. You're just kind of holding down a button and that's it. It's not really mentally engaging or stimulating. So when I wrote my article, I basically said, I noticed that Chinese Room has just shut down. I know that Tacoma sold like only 10,000 copies, which is very low compared to Gone Home. And so I was I was sort of exploring the mystery of like, why did walking sims fail? And sort of my idea, the, the thing that I, I felt like I was seeing was these games were really interesting to people in terms of premise. Like, oh, hey, this is a game about grief, or this is a game about somebody, you know, trying to find her family at home. And like, those aren't normally things we engage in in video games. But they were done, a lot of these games are done in a very, very sort of boring manner. Like the idea of a blind girl getting to know a space could be really interesting. But in the game Beyond Eyes, you mostly just hold down a button and walk really slow while somebody talks at you. So it's not a very engaging experience. So my hypothesis was the future of the walking sim is going to be that they're going to actually turn into things with mechanics. And so I knew that if I was going to make a walking sim, it would need to be a game with a lot of different mechanics in it. So, rather than have one contiguous experience where you hear someone's really expensive voice acting speaking at you, sort of telling you a story that has nothing to do with the actual actions you're taking, I was going to make a game all about actions with a story you'd have to figure out. I was going to be more about pure mechanics, and these mechanics are impact you in an emotional way, and we'll just go from there. So we're going to deal with, we're still going to deal with mundane things, we're going to deal with all this stuff, but we're actually going to have really intentional emotional pacing rather than just kind of hoping for an emotional response based on the subject matter. So yeah, we, we built a game with a sort of photographic negative of a story um, rather than sort of being really explicit with our narrative. You know, Jess and I talked long on hard about what we wanted out of the game. And at one point, she wanted the driving sequence uh, to be 25 minutes long. I wanted to just kind of get that sense of boredom that you could get in maybe two minutes at most. The highway blindness? Yeah, I really wanted that road hypnosis, right? And she was like, I want to do 25 uninterrupted minutes of driving. And I was like, Jess, no one will play our game. And no one will like our game if you do that. So we I don't know. Talked I don't know. I, there's there's people who play a uh,
0: Desert Bus for like 72 it's, hours straight. It's so. true. It's true. But they're usually doing that to raise money or something, right? Well, that's secondary. Yeah. I think they're doing it because they just like the bus driving experience. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I think the
1: ladder climbing sequence in Metal Gear Solid 3 is like six minutes long.
2: <laughs> well, there's 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 something to be said for boredom, right? And there are some people, uh, for them, it works. For them, the driving sequence really captures the sense of road hypnosis, and they love it. Other people think it's the worst thing they've ever seen in a video game. Um, <laughs> having playtested the game 35 times, probably more, actually, now at this point. I've played through it. I've completed this game a lot, right? Because I you know, built it. I don't ever want to do it again and I'm glad that in our <laughs> test build we had in our test build we have skips you can actually there was a button that you could press to skip it but in the ship build we don't have that cuz you know I mean as much as I may disagree with Jess about having the driving being so long I do like games that are confrontational I do like games that make you deal with uncomfortable subjects and just establish I think discomfort through something very different you know, often we, we use discomfort through, like, violence or whatever, right? Yeah. And, and Jess made a, a choice here that, I'm glad it wasn't 25 NERF in minutes of driving, um, <laughs> but she made a choice that I think worked. I think made players have to deal with discomfort, and for some people that works, and for some people it doesn't, and that's great. So it's a, it's a game that has a lot of different verbs, and it's a game that, basically it's the anti-expository game. There is no exposition in this game at all. Nothing will be explained. If people haven't checked this game out or seen anything about it,
0: people definitely should. I mean, just right off the bat, it's visually captivating. And I think that if, if people had an issue with walking simulators originally, if you tried out Dear Esther or something like that, and you were like, no, this is not a genre for me, I think that this would be a good opportunity to sort of return to it and see if this game has something that you were maybe missing from those those other ones. Because it, it it is very cool. It's very... Um, off-putting in a good way, like it, it, it should it's, be. It's, it's it's disturbing, which which is something that I appreciate. And like you said, maybe maybe you know that that experience isn't for for everyone. But I think everyone should at least uh check it out and see if it if it is for them. Why don't we jump into our topic and start out the way we always do with a little bit of a history lesson, Jared? Why don't you lay a little history on us?
1: I think our last like three episodes have started with us talking about Dungeons and Dragons. Everything goes back nineteen seventy-seven. We should, and just, our RPG system. we should just stop bringing it up. Like we
0: should re- just record, just, just have like a pre-recorded segment. Yeah. Dungeons just every and Dragons. Time For every episode. Dungeons and Dragons is the origins of this. And they invented
1: <laughs> insert mechanic here. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, like once again, Dungeons and Dragons is sort of the foundation for a lot of modern video games, including a morality wow. system. One of the the first editions of d d had basically just lawful and chaotic and then subsequent editions sort of expanded on that, and you had lawful, chaotic, good, or evil, and you could be on a spectrum of those choices.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't operate in the way that I think most people traditionally, or the way people think of karma and morality in a modern context. Instead, it it was more like you pick it at the start of when you're creating your character, and then it's supposed to help guide the, the decisions that you're making. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to guide your role-playing as you're playing through the game. So... We don't need to spend too much time on it, but it, it, it's not exactly what we're, ta- we're going to end up talking about. No, but it was I,
1: something I like, like the DM would award you for playing your character, right? You get more exactly. XP if you're lawful good and you are saving the princess versus like you're lawful good and you get bored so you decide to burn down the entire marketplace or something. Yeah. And now we always got to ask every time we bring
0: D&D up, Doc, are you a and d player at all?
2: I'm playing my first game, actually. Nice, man. Um, Welcome. It is... Not fun, oh no! <laughs> no, it's it's uh it, it's it's our DM's first time, and he's using a module, and that module is maybe not good for first timers. Mm. Just more myself than my DM, but um, it's uh yeah, it's an interesting experience. I'll put it that way. And plus, we're <laughs> doing it entirely through text, so it takes forever. Uh, oh, like text yeah. messaging on your phone? Uh, no, just through Discord. But oh, like, okay. uh, or, like, we're doing it through Roll Twenty and Discord. Yeah, but, I've tried doing that. Uh, it's a it's a pain it's yeah it's slow yeah but it's... i mean
0: finding finding the right group is a huge part of it those are the things that come with like experience especially if you're saying like your dm is kind of new to it that's you know he's
2: he's played a ton of games but he's never been the dm before yeah. so
0: and that's something that comes with playing with being dm for a while as you start to like pick up on the little social cues of your uh of your group and yep. and, and know like oh, okay this isn't really working we should we should move to something else but I hope you stick with it I hope it uh, I hope it all works out because D&D is is a
1: lot of fun what do we got next Jared so yeah that was sort of like the first mention I think or the first idea you know that kind of seeded the idea for morality systems I mean karma and
0: morality predate d and D. I I think it's maybe just the first time it's been I mean the first recognizable time it was put into any kind of game sense
1: did you say karma and morality predate d and D? I I mean you're not wrong but <laughs> is, so,
0: I mean, most understatement, <laughs> I guess. No, I, mean, I know. I know. I mean, I guess that sounds pretty general and, and blanket, but Gary Gygax took a lot of inspiration from games that existed before d and A lot of like tabletop miniature, miniature gaming. You know, there may have been elements of that in other games that predated it. It's just it's so hard to track down because there's not a lot of information about stuff that predated D&D and uh, and yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I added anything to the conversation there. Jared,
1: (laughs) dig me out of this hole. What's that? Welcome to my world. Uh, So a few (laughs) years after that, uh, Zork 3 on the Apple II computer came out in 1982. It was written by Mark Blanc or blank possibly, Dave Liebling, Bruce Daniels, and Tim Anderson. It was published by Infocom. And like other Zork games, it was a text-based adventure where you have to acquire the items and complete the game. This was the first game in the series, however, to track how players completed certain tasks.
0: There were items that you needed to complete the game, just like in the other Zork games, but you you would be tested. And the number of times you had been tested was a visible stat. You could, you could see how many times you had had these virtue tests. But you didn't know until you got to the end of the game if you had successfully completed each of the tests mm. and you would just sort of like either win or fail. And that was like kind of the way that you knew. I mean the Zork games have always been like very unforgiving like if you did one thing wrong at the beginning of the game you could keep playing for the entire game and then get to the end and realize you couldn't complete it if I got to the end of the game and that happened to me I'd be like well that was fun never touching this again I mean that's why there was like a lot of big communities built around these games I don't know that anyone just completed Zork I think it was sort of like a like group think I don't think anybody was able to complete it without talking to their friends about like, oh, did you discover this thing? Or hopping on... Yeah, it's pre-internet. Like early, version, kind of like yeah, like early versions of forums or whatever to, to discuss...
1: You to talk to people game. in person? It's terrible.
0: Now, the thing about Zork 3 that's funny, though, is in like, the previous Zork games, mostly all you had to do is get the items, so how you got them wasn't important. So it'd be like, all right, kill the ogre, whatever. You know, take the thing, steal the thing, whatever. And in this game... It was actually tracking how you did it, so you had to actually like be nice to the old blind man in order to get his staff instead of just like you know tri- tripping him and taking it or whatever it is. Like I the mean, other games, that you, do you do. have to like
1: kill the ogre humanely versus like desecrating the body. <laughs>
0: I don't, I don't know about all that. I don't know. I never played Zork three. I the only the only Zork game I ever played was Zork one as a child, and I was not old enough to comprehend what was really happening. For me, it was just the fun of like putting in the inputs, like go north and then like reading the description it was kind of like a for me it was kind of like a choose your own adventure novel but i never like played zork the way it was supposed to be played and that was that's my experience with the zork franchise
1: at this next game i think we talk about this game is like we, it comes up a lot but we don't know anyone who's actually played it is the uh, ultima 4 for the apple 2 came out in 1985 designed by richard garriott and published by origin systems it moved away from the hack and slash gameplay of the previous games and it had more of a, a narrative built in it also had a karma system as a core mechanic for progressing the narrative the player had to achieve enlightenment and eight different virtues based on three capital p principles without going too deep into it the three principles are truth love and courage you could raise those by performing various actions as you might expect uh, and or, it, lower, and it, or lower or you, lower you can. you can go down and it can affect your ability to achieve enlightenment in that virtue. Now, I don't know. Could you fail state that? Like, could you just get too low where there is no coming back? I
0: don't know. I don't know. Again, I never played. No, no one played the Ultimate Games. No, they, yep. Someone <laughs> paid for them to come out, but that, I don't know if anyone played. There's a, There's been a million of them, and I think
2: there's only like two people that play them. Now, It's actually a game that I have installed on my computer right now, but have not played.
1: Yeah, I think it's one of those games that's kind of like, you need to set aside some time. To learn it, and yeah, that's that's hard to do. No, there, there's tons of people
0: who play the Ultima games. Uh, I know Jeff Kanata over at DLC, he's a maybe big they're still playing, the and that's Ultimate why we can't
1: series. find them. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe you're not, you're probably not wrong. The thing about Ultima, though, or Ultima 4 in this case, was that it got direct inspiration from Hinduism and their beliefs in karma. Uh, Gary designed the karma system as a direct response to sentiment during that time the RPGs promoted satanism and unwholesome family values. He also reflected on how his other games rewarded poor moral decisions and he wanted to craft a system to sort of encourage more positive behavior. And this is interesting because
0: I think Ultima is Ultima 4 is probably the first game to feature a karma system in the way that we typically think of karma systems in modern game design and to have it be such a conscious decision of like, look, my last game, you needed money so you could you could just kill the farmer and take his money, and there was no repercussions for that in the game. You know, to have, to have this karma system be a, a moral reflection of the, the game designer on himself, I, I think is,
1: is really cool. What does it say about us as, as humans that they're like, man, people really want to do some messed up things. Let's, mm-hmm. let's make sure that we reward them for just doing the right thing.
0: Yeah. And and like many of the topics we talk about on the show, I think it in a, in a modern context, it's in games because that's just game design. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the way it is. We got a game where you can talk to NPCs. We We have to give you the option to do good or bad. But it was born from a very conscious decision to say, like, no, I want to encourage the player to do morally upright things. Doc, when we talk about morality systems, karma systems in modern game design, what first springs to your mind? Like what leaps out immediately to you?
2: I'm going to sound like a complete hack here. Um, I, I got to bring up Bioshock, right? Um, I, th- I think that's a valid example. Fun fact about me. Bioshock is actually the first video game I, I legally owned ever. <laughs> um, you know, I, I grew up in a super conservative household we're talking um you know i i remember my my cousin had need for speed it would have been the first one with cops in it and Mm. he installed it on my grandpa's computer and i remember my dad just getting so upset and like lecturing us and stuff because you know it was a game where you ran from the cops and that's bad and you shouldn't run from cops and so you know my, my family has always had this very I won't say it's necessarily right or wrong, but it's a it's a very strong moral sense of how humans need to comport themselves. And my dad didn't like the idea of games that would let you do bad things, so he didn't like games at all. Um,
0: I'm curious what he thought about
2: harvesting the little sisters. <laughs> I have never you just ever, straight into I the would deep never, end with that one, huh? I would never present that game to him. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, he. He got me a copy of like Flight Simulator, and you know I had Oregon Trail. That was about it. There's a few other games, right? Number Maze, Geo Safari, like all these educational games. Mm-hmm. I had this memory of my dad. He was about, I think maybe like two rooms away. My my best friend at the time uh, brought his copy of Combat Flight Simulator over, and it was like, ooh, awesome Flight Simulator, but you get to shoot. This is great. This is my favorite thing in the whole world right now. And so my friend is showing me the game, and I'm like, oh, Dad doesn't normally let me play games unless they're flight simulators. You know, I want to play like, games like you're like, technically. Well, dad shouts from, like, two rooms over. I have no idea how he heard us. But he, he shouts something like, it's not a game, it's a simulator. Because he was, like, really, he really did not like the idea of us kids, uh, me and my siblings, playing games. He only, he would let me play simulators because it was kind of like flying for real. It was a strange situation to be in uh, growing up with parents who hated video games. Um, Eventually, when I went to college, I got a copy of Bioshock. I played Bioshock. And, you know, that was that game, uh, especially then going and finding System Shock 2 after that, kind of made me go, oh, wow, games can really be really interesting. And here's this game, Bioshock, you know, where it's like, do you kill the child or spare the child? That's like, ooh, that's cool. That's a neat moral choice because before this, all I'd ever done was like, you know, go over to my friend's house and play Age of Empires or something. I hadn't really seen what games could be, and Bioshock's actually making me make choices. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. This is where I want games to go, so I'm really glad that games are actually doing this. I think on its surface
0: was first-person shooter, but I think it Trojan-horsed a lot of a lot of more nuanced like gameplay and, and narrative decision making in there I, so I think that a lot of people for them it was like wait the first a second time, like this like, game I thought is I was... making
1: me feel emotions
0: exactly I think for a lot of people it was like I just want to jump in and shoot things in the face and then they're like oh wait I have to make uh difficult decisions about things and I have to understand I have to try to understand the philosophy of this <laughs> underwater city but so you, you've been talking about it for a while now now I have to know did you do you save the little sisters or do you harvest them
2: I'd save them. Um, you know, I was I was talking with somebody out at GDC. And we were talking about moral systems in games, and she said something which I'd heard before, but I was glad to hear it again. Which was that every time they do studies on this to see which, what players choose, the vast majority of players will always choose to be the good guy. You know, for all the all the talk about how video games make people more violent or whatever, most players will always choose to be the good person. They will always make what we would consider the good choices in games. And I'm, I'm one of those people, right? I only blew up Megaton once just to get the achievement in Fallout 3. And then I mm. immediately reloaded my save and was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm not <laughs> um, I've seen the reality <laughs> where you're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, I like playing the bad guy. I loved Syndicate 2012. I loved being evil in that game and running around like literally flamethrowing the resistance, right? And they're all screaming, (laughs) oh God, I'm on fire. It was amazing. Like, it was great to actually play a game where there was no choice. You just had to be the bad guy.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And then the game was like, actually, you were secretly a good guy the whole time. And I'm like, well, tell that to the guys that I flamethrowered. You know, and it it was sort of a really cringy, embarrassing twist on a game that had been brilliant up to that point like really an underrated video game up until that twist and then it's like oh my god this is terrible because um, games want you to be the good guy and players want to be the good guy and i am one of those people i i want to be the good guy in most games i play which is probably why i make games about being the bad guy <laughs> i think a lot of people are very
0: mechanics focused when they play games so I, I'm curious in a game like Bioshock, if the decision to save the little sisters or harvest the little sisters, like if the delta between those rewards was wider, if it would have skewed people more towards doing one thing or the other, like, like if you absolutely got no resources and the only way to get resources was to harvest the little sisters, would more people engage in that side of it? Or do you think people would be more inclined to continue down the righteous path of like always saving them? A lot of people would complain. You think that if people were faced with the option, like, I want to do the good thing, but I feel like I'm
2: punished for it, that that would cause complaints? What you would see, and I'm saying this with some confidence, if you, if you gave somebody a choice and the choice was between zero reward and 100% reward, but people liked the moral idea of the zero reward rather than picking one or the other, Mm-hmm. They would quit the game, call the game garbage, and get mad at the developers. And they would say, I wanted to be the good guy. Why didn't you let me be the good guy? And you know, the developers would say, well, you could be the good guy. You just wouldn't get anything out of it. And the players would be like, that doesn't seem right. Because players are used to choices, I don't want to say not mattering, but they're used to getting um, the same thing out of all choices.
0: And I think that that's because I think a lot of people are inherently like more mechanics focused. I don't know. There's got to be a better way to like to phrase it, but I think people want to enjoy the experience of playing the game more than they actually care about the story of a game. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah. And this is in spite of I think most people defining themselves as a narrative first gamer, because I think a lot. I think there are a lot of people who say I play video games for the story, but I think that when then confronted with something challenging like like what you're suggesting, like okay you can do the right thing, you're not gonna get any reward for it, then they you know, then there become these complaints. It's one of the things I think makes game design so fascinating is there always has to be this general idea, this general sense of fun that exists, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense for what's going on narratively.
1: I have a video game idea I'm gonna pitch you guys right now. Right. It's it's the Dark Souls of morality systems. You've already lost the, me. The You've game already gets, lost the me. The game gets harder. The more good decisions you make. The more moral decisions you make.
2: Wait,
0: now you gotta give me you gotta give me an example.
2: It's like Hercules path, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But Plus like, the, of, like I mean, think there's of the, it like there's a story about Hercules, right? Like the, the better he, person
1: your character yeah. is, the harder life will be for them. I don't know how you make that game or what that looks like.
2: I mean, there's literally like that's what the Hercules story is about. Like he uh he's talking to some person and she's like yeah, so Hercules, there's two paths to the the place you want to go. That path is really easy, but it's the bad one. And that path is really hard, but it's the good one. And so Hercules is like, all right, well, I'm Hercules. I'm the best, so I'm going to go do the hard one. And he does because he's Hercules. But-, but, that's,
0: but that's kind of what Bioshock suggested, right? Bioshock suggested if you choose not to harvest the little sisters, the game will be harder for you. I just think that functionally, like it all kind of came out in the wash, right? It didn't, matter one, it didn't matter
2: one way or it's, the other.
0: But that was the promise of that system in that game.
2: Like a lot of the abilities are pretty much the same; they're just reskinned mm-hmm. slightly. You know, the electrical versus water ability compared to the uh, like fire and oil ability are basically the I don't, same
0: thing. I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. I just shot bees oh. at everybody. That's That's a a <laughs> there were other there were other abilities besides bees that was the, that was the OP <laughs> ability
2: in that game <laughs> right uh, you know Dishonor comes to mind actually. Um, in dishonored, if you play the moral way and you don't kill anybody, the game is harder because there's more guards around if I remember right. If you get really violent and kill a lot of guards, then the game gets hard in a different way because now you've got the the zombie bug people. Um, there's more of them because there were more rats spreading the plague and the plague made the bug people.
1: I always do, you know, the less confrontational like stealth path. So that's the way I played that game. And then I, you know, went back and looked at some of the marketing and it was like crazy, like teleporting, stabbing a guy, like doing some like cool stop motion stuff. And it was just like I didn't get to in- interact with any of that because all of that was combat mechanics. So I was just like kind of quietly tiptoeing around.
2: Yeah, I uh, I complained about it when I finished the game, and then I had a conversation with Harvey about it, where we kind of talked about why Arcane did some of the things they did. And, you know, I mean, ultimately for me, I would be the happiest person in the world if Arcane did not have the end game judgment screen where they talk about, you know, who you are and what you do. In Dishonored 2, I killed all the witches. There's a, there's a magical machine that's supposed to rob them of their powers, but... In the first week of the game's release, there was a a small bug that prevented that machine from working correctly. So, since I played the game right on launch, instead of the patch that came out like, you know, four days after it launched or whatever, since I rushed through that game, uh, I ended up playing this game with like all these witches around. And so, I, of course, killed all of them because the combat was really fun. But also, in the game you're contextualized as this person who's like supposed to protect the empire and the witches are like super powered and also hurting people and if you like press the heart and make the heart like tell you what's going on the heart's a thing that like for anybody who doesn't know the heart uh basically tells you about every npc in the game you can literally just point it at somebody and it'll like, be like, like a watchdogs oh, yeah. thing yeah yeah exactly it's like Hey, by the way, uh, this person, you know, murders children. And you're like, oh, okay, well, then I'm going to go ahead and kill that person. um, So that children (laughs) don't get murdered anymore. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, the the game doesn't have a... It doesn't really have a justice system, right? Mm -hmm. You are just kind of one person, and you have a couple verbs at your disposal. And most of those verbs are stab, Mm -hmm. or punch, or murder. You know, it's... They're violent verbs. Mm -hmm. So... The only way I can do good in the world of Dishonored is fundamentally to either not stab somebody who doesn't deserve to be stabbed or to stab someone to prevent them from stabbing other people. Those are like my only choices for being a good person, essentially. So when it came to the witches, it was like, oh, yeah, she, you know, keeps her dad locked up in a basement and comes home and tortures him every two weeks or something. And I was like, oh, my God, that sounds like a horrible person. Stab. And it was like. Yeah, yeah, stab, right? And, oh, this person, you know, she's uh, she killed her you know, nieces and nephews. And I was like, oh. Double stab. All of the witches, if you go back and look at all of the heartlines for the witches, nearly all of them are like, these are awful people. And they have superpowers so they can overcome the cops. So there's, there's no one who can get in their way except you. And so I made this moral choice. And I, I said, all right, I'm not a violent person in real life. In games, mostly I want to play the good guy, but the only option I see, because, again, there was a bug that prevented me from just taking their magic away, the only option that I have is to be violent yeah. and to essentially, you know, do what I got to do. And I so think- I stabbed them all, but I didn't stab anybody else. I thought it was really good about not stabbing human beings. To me, right. I was seeing them as, like, vampire thralls or something, so I didn't think those was a problem. And then at the end of the game, it's like, Oh yeah, Corva was a horrible person, and he too many stabs. Dick- exactly. Yeah, he stabbed too many people. So it, it was tracking me by just my kill count, and it wasn't determining whether or not the kill count was justified or not. Right, but, which, but that's which is the odd. That's the they- thing
1: chose to give you the information the backstory the context
2: but that's the thing
0: right is like if if you had the heart pointed at you it would be like this person has killed hundreds you know what i mean (laughs)
2: like
0: right like this person acts as judge jury and executioner for everybody they
2: encounter (laughs) granted but that that is literally your job in the game you are the lord protector of the empire it's literally what you're supposed to do but i think that that's i think that that's
0: all, well, I shouldn't say all. I think that's most games that have a morality system in them, right? Like, I think one of the fundamental issues when we talk about things like karma and morality in games, uh, and and I'll use Red Dead Redemption 2 because it's one of my favorite punching bags recently for some reason. But, you know, like, in that game, there is a karma system. You can can be good or you can be bad. But at the end of the day, like, Arthur has, like, murdered hundreds of people. He's murdered, I mean, in my game, probably closer to thousands of people. And yet, somehow, I'm still like on the positive side of this morality scale. You,
1: you tip your hat every time you see exactly. a, a nice person said, in town. I've
0: said howdy. To <laughs> I like that people you can do town. both.
1: Be like, hey, Mister. Also, get fucked, Mister. The same yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's balance. That's, it, that's how karma works, right? Keep it balanced. But it
2: would be interesting to have a morality system that's less about are you a good person or a bad person, maybe more like, are you a gentleman killer or are you a brute? <laughs> you know, you could do something like that. Yeah, like
0: like if if it was more. If the axes that we're spinning on were not necessarily good or bad, but some other kind of axes, I could definitely, I could definitely see that. I, I maybe this is a good time to want to jump into this, but what what does karma like represent in a game? I'll throw this to you, Jared. But when we're talking about things like morality and karma in games, you know, what do you, what do you think of when you're thinking of these systems and their implementations?
1: Usually, there's like a good and a bad. And you kind of just pick one or the other and try to mid max it, right? You're you're trying to be like the best good person you can. And for me, yeah, I'm always playing the good guy for some reason. I do that too. I typically I typically go the good route. Well, it kind of sucks playing the bad guy. That you're, you're you're the hero, but you could be like a dickhead. You know, that was like the thing with Mass Effect where it's just like the the rogue actions i think they call it rogue and paragon paragon yeah paragon. And um, and Yeah. the Renegade. rogue actions were just like completely insane you could either tell the reporter not right now or you can smash the reporter in the face or something like that you know it's like it, that doesn't seem like a the way anybody would react in that situation so i guess i'll go the good route because that's the only thing that makes sense it's funny to punch her in the face I'm not
2: going to lie. I think, sure. it's only, I think it's the only evil wow. option I ever take routinely in a video game. But you know, at the same wow. time, Mass Effect, I want to say Mass Effect 2. Might have been Mass Effect 3. No, it's Mass Effect 2. So if you had a relationship with uh, Ashley for Mass Effect 1, that game was really interesting and nuanced because she wants to be a good person, but also her family got dunked on because they had to surrender to the aliens. So she has all this resentment against humanity, but she perceives it as being resentment against aliens. And so a lot of people are like, oh, Ashley's a space racist. I'm not ever going to talk to her again, (laughs) right? But if you actually play with her, um, you know, you can end up with a relationship with her and all this other stuff. But you kind of help her work through her issues and realize that, oh, actually, she's maybe like it's misdirected anger. And she's like she becomes a better person as a result, right? There's a really interesting story there. Um, same with Garrus, right? Garrus is a complete idiot. He's one of the worst people in that entire universe that you encounter in that game because he's like, I want to go kill everyone who is bad. You know, he is the ultimate renegade in the game. He, he's just all about murdering people who are wrong. And you can help him realize murder is not the... The only option, and it's not even the, the best option. There are reasons that rules exist, and that there is bureaucracy and all this other stuff. He's you know, a, he wants. Garris, be, Garris is like a space cop, right? Yeah, he's a space cop. Okay, he wants to be space dirty Harry. That's yeah, that sounds about right. For, for, that sounds about right. Yeah. So like like he wants to kill people. Ashley is just very standoffish. People seem to hate her more than Garris for some reason, but you know, you have these two different people, and if you spend time with them, like a lot of time with them. Uh, Not only do they trust you more, but they kind of start to, like, you can help them realize they're actually doing the wrong thing. And you can make them better people. There's a whole, like, character arc that's kind of subtle and slow, and it's really interesting. And so Mass Effect 1 is, like, a really fun RPG for that reason.
1: Well, imagine if it did the other way, right? Instead of, like, you being... uh... Uh, witness to their story like what if the game encouraged you as a player to make questionable decisions and the story or the characters the ai whatever in return says like hey like maybe that wasn't the best thing and then like tries to make you feel like oh maybe i should change my opinion i feel like that would be a much more interesting way of approaching that type of story yeah
2: encouraging encouraging self-reflection is always really good it's also really hard it's what gets me though is so that's mass effect one right and you go to mass effect two and it's like oh yeah you can punch a person in the face or you can do this it it simplified a lot of decisions it made them less i guess i should say it made the difference between decisions way more
1: stark and that's what i was saying earlier is like i feel like almost when you have morality systems in games it's the game is asking you a loaded question like do you want to do this thing that makes sense for this character that we've written and established? Or do you want to like be an asshole and edgy? And it's like, well, obviously right. I'm going to do the thing that you really want me to do. Cause the other one's stupid. <laughs> and I feel like that's yeah. why it's a loaded question, right? They like direct what, you. What's like, strange
2: yeah. is when Ashley, Ashley shows back up in mass effect two. And no matter what happens, if she was your relationship person, some guys like who are you and why are you here and he's like annoyed with you or whatever it's some ma- random maintenance dude right and then ashley shows up out of the blue and she's she looks at the guy and she goes you're talking to a god <laughs> and i'm like sitting there like what what excuse me <laughs> um and she's like telling this this random npc like how amazing and whatever i am and stuff and it's like where is this coming from ashley what is this line even? You know, it, it was very strange because if I was playing Renegade, that that's a weird line to have. I mean, if I was playing, you know, Paragon, it's also really weird. It's just a bad line in general. But then you get like, you get like Garrus, right? And so while you can be the guy who punches a reporter in the face or doesn't punch a reporter in the face, suddenly Mass Effect 2 is like, well, Garrus ignored everything you said in Mass Effect 1. And he just went to being Renegade again and now he's Archangel and he got all his people killed and that just makes him super badass. And it's like Well, him getting all his people killed makes him kind of a terrible leader. Also <laughs> the fact that he rejected everything that I, you know, taught him in the last game about not being dirty hairy, like the game never even mentions that he's betrayed my trust here or betrayed the you know, the lessons I tried to teach him. The game kind of just decides Hey, Garrus needs to be more badass. And you know what? Mass Effect 2 is one of the most, if not the most, critically acclaimed RPGs of all time. Whereas Mass Effect 1, the game with like the really sensitive, in-depth, interesting story where a character learns to evolve and grow. That game is not as well received. My point with this is people actually respond incredibly well to binaries. Mm-hmm. They they respond way stronger to Garrus being like this really clear cut asshole. As opposed to Garrus being like, sort of a nuanced guy who's kind of going through some stuff, and you know you nudge him over the course of forty hours into being a better person, they they prefer the oh, "I'm Garrus and I'm just a badass" and that's all there is to it. That's what they want, in a, in a way. Um, people just respond clearer to or, or respond to clearer things more strongly. But even even in Mass Effect,
0: I feel like that that was a little muddied. The the fact that Garrus. Because I think Garrus is supposed to be the, like, cool guy, even though he's done these horrible things. Like, he's presented in a way that you're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, that guy, he's like rock and roll. He's the badass. Right. When what he's done is not so great. Going back to some things that you guys had mentioned earlier, because I'm, I'm, like, trying to take notes here as you guys are talking on some really cool ideas. I, I think a lot of the, the issues with karma and morality systems is that it gets put on this scale that, that goes from, like, bad to good. And it, like, shows up on screen, right? Like, that's like that's one of the big mechanics. You pick the good thing, you know, you pick the Paragon thing and you watch the needle move a little bit closer to you being, you know, ultimate Paragon and un- and unlocking those abilities. But I-, I think one of the things that you-, you guys have both mentioned was the impacts of those actions and, and those impacts being the-, the payoff as the important part of it. Now, I like the way a game like Fallout 4 kind of approached Morality. They moved away from the kind of black and white binary morality systems of the previous games. And I I don't think Fallout 4's system was perfect by any means, but I liked that the actions you took affected the partner that you had with you at any given time. That when you, you know, when you murdered someone in cold blood, if you had someone with you who took issue with that, that they would be cold to you. In some cases, they would even, like, stop being your companion and leave you um, because you had taken these... You know actions that they considered immoral, and, and I thought that that was kind of an interesting way to 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 handle that—to have there be consequences for your actions in a way that's not as easy to min max as like I'm just going to pick the good option every time I'm presented with a dialogue choice.
2: Yeah, there there you, are um, you could still several RPGs it. that do that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. I remember uh, Dragon Age Origins did that. For instance, you could, if you invite Logan into your party, Alistair leaves. What's weird is uh, Dragon Age 2 came out, though, and they kind of removed that system. I think you can still piss a couple people off enough that they could leave your team, but they create this much simpler thing where it's like you have sort of a love-hate meter rather than a good-bad meter, and if you max out the hate meter, the character will fall in love with you and move into your house. Which I discovered accidentally. Um, you know, I thought, oh, well, if I make this elf who I hate, hate me, she'll leave. That'll be awesome. I didn't want her in my party anyways. And the game was like, nope, you're she's your wife now. And I was
1: like, uh-oh. Just like I'm in not real into life, this.
0: Just like in real life. <laughs>
2: Pretty
1: much. It's, it's... Steve, I'm here to talk after if you need to. <laughs> I know. You got
0: to edit this
2: out. My wife might actually listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a strange game. There's actually, I mean, I could... We could spend literally hours talking about Dragon Age 2 and what a strange game that was. But the idea of basically everything just being a meter, and if you, you know, in Dragon Age Origins, if you gave somebody enough gifts or had enough interesting conversations with them, you could max out their friendship meter, and they think they would be better in battle or whatever, and, you know, they could sleep with you and all that other stuff, right? Um, You know, and you could could also give them stuff that that would make them hate you, um, and then they would leave the party. And it was a much more dynamic system than what Dragon Age 2 did later, but it's still all bar driven and one of the other things i liked about fallout
0: 4 was that you could also take dog meat with you and he didn't judge he didn't judge anything you did like in no way well, he's a dog he's a dog it makes sense i mean it makes total sense he doesn't judge you <laughs> right oh he's but- judging <laughs> well the game doesn't tell you he's judging you at all so i guess that's the good thing but this is another one of my issues i think with the way that karma and morality are typically handled in games is that it's that old, you know, if a tree falls in the wood and there's no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? Like if you murder someone in cold blood and there's no one around, why does it, you know, Like if I'm Arthur Morgan on the planes and I, I kill someone, like, why does my, uh, why does my karma dip? Well, I guess maybe karma is not the best way right? <laughs> like, why does someone in town treat me differently because I did something, you know, a hundred miles away from them that they, that they can't see. And that's one of the reasons I liked Fallout 4, the way that they handled it in Fallout 4. Again, not a perfect system. Like, it doesn't make any sense that if I pick a hundred locks, Piper wants to
1: sleep with me or whatever it is, you know? Or, but, you probably- know, there's the way that The Witcher 3 sort of approached it, and everything is kind of just bad in that world. You know, there's there's just mm-hmm. never-ending wars and, and a lot of people in poverty, and the way that they kind of make, present their moral choices is in, you know, these very gray, shades of gray, right? And there's no meter to tell you if you're doing a good thing or a bad thing. You're like, well, I guess I would do this or, or um, Geralt would do this in his situation. And you often don't really see, like, because you did that, you don't see what the implications are until several hours later in the story. And I think that that's a smart approach it's because they have built a world in which there aren't good and bad systems you know everything's kind of bad or or depressing in a way and you just kind of try to do your best
2: i i think why cd project red works is because what they do is is very character driven rather than morality driven right right instead I of to, saying
1: that's what like i would never in, in, in any other rpg i would be like no you don't have to pay me like i just want to be a good guy and do what's right but playing mm-hmm. the witcher i'm like well yeah I'm a, I'm a mercenary i need to get paid so i, I don't mind. Playing that way because they've established that that character. But they,
2: they, they could even do other things too, right? Like if you told a person, oh no I don't need to get paid for this, right? They might have written that character to be like a shifty person who takes advantage of people right? And so now that person is thinking, oh I can take advantage of this witcher and that can open you up to an entirely different quest line where that hypothetical character is like going to try to scam you essentially they can literally take advantage just of your them. kindness yeah that's that's kind of the thought process i think that goes on behind their quest is like they're like oh well i know who this person is and i know what this person would think about your decision so all of your decisions in a witcher game are based on how the characters feel versus an invisible meter so i th- i think that this is starting to get at maybe the
0: heart of what my, my biggest issue is with morality systems in games is that I think morality systems are an attempt to introduce gameplay mechanics and couple that with narrative mechanics. And it's these it's these two elements that should almost operate independently but are forced to be coupled. And I think it's because players want to know that their that their actions have some sort of impact. In the story. Immediately. I think that receiving that feedback, that what you are doing is important, is the best kind of feedback that as a player you can receive. And so we've come to this system where the the narrative implications get gamified in this karmic, you know, like in this karma system, and we just end up with the the bar, the bar that we've been talking about this whole time, this like good and bad bar. But how do you decouple those things? does removing the just the appearance of the bar does that go enough or does that eliminate the the whole reason to have a karma system in the first
2: place I think it's it's ultimately it's a resolution issue, right Oh for sure you know if you look at a really low resolution image, right, it has everything broken up into like discrete discrete chunks right mm-hmm. to a point where it can be completely you, know, you see just a couple like squares, and those squares could mean any one thing. Then as you add resolution, those details become increasingly smaller You know, as your pixels are getting smaller, right? Mm-hmm. So a really high-resolution image, which looks true to life, is the one where those individual pixels are the least visible. And so with a morality system, the ideal morality system in a game, the one that's going to not feel fake, is the one that is hiding the most it's downplaying a lot of that it's not here's a one big meter right in front of your face it's more like yeah there's a meter but it's invisible and you can't see it and you don't really understand how it works you know it's the more you obfuscate the more lifelike it will feel but then i think because humans don't have meters right yeah but then
0: i think the other side of that is player players want that that like immediate feedback i think players love watching scales slide back and forth Right, maybe maybe more than actually playing a game. I think I think people people just like to see a number go up or down,
2: <laughs> which is why I think the the curation of Witcher is probably the best implementation we will ever see. Um, ever see? Because huh? like my well yeah, well I mean I think they can get better at what they're doing, but I just mean of all the solutions I've seen, I think that's probably the best one. Right? It's um. You're playing a game, and you make a decision, and then that decision is curated by the, the, the narrative designers, so it'll come back in an interesting way. They always make sure all their the decisions that come back are interesting, and never just a good, bad thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. you may make a good choice, but then some person's like, I can't believe you killed my father, and you're like, well, your father was poaching children, And he's like, but he was still my father, and I'm upset about that. And you're like, yeah, but he was literally a child murderer. That's bad. I killed him. (laughs) It was a good reason. And he like, yeah, I know, but he was family. And, you know, you can do things like that in the the game where it's like, it's a memorable moment because, and I'm I'm intentionally, you know, making up examples rather than stealing from the game because I don't want people to get spoiled if they haven't played the games because they should. Um, But, you know, by creating moments that feel memorable, People are more likely to be like, oh, yeah, I'll come back to that. Like, I'll I'll be honest. I don't really remember any Paragon or Renegade actions in Mass Effect at all because they're they just kind of had the A path or the B path. And in The Witcher, it's more like they sat down, they went, all right. Based on the choices you could make here, what is going to come back to you that's memorable? It was always about what's memorable rather than what's good or bad. And I think that makes a more satisfying game. And that's where, the, that's where you get the feedback. Rather than having the Paragon Renegade meter, it's more like they mm-hmm. just made sure every option would be a good option, or a satisfying option, or at least an interesting one. So it's, a, it's an interesting direction to take. It, re, it relies on having a really good narrative team, though. And uh, most people don't have the advantage of, of that because a lot of people bring narrative designers on super late in the development process rather than, than bringing them on early. Which is the whole other problem. I want to talk to you
0: about the way that you approached morality in your game. Well, I guess I, I guess I'll just start asking you the big question: like, how, how did you approach representing morality in your game? Because your game is is a game that discusses a lot of. I don't want to spoil mm-hmm. too much of it, but it is a game that discusses crime. It, it discusses poverty. It discusses minutia. It discusses you know it, like it, it's a game about a lot of different things, but. When you set out to make this game, was morality something that was on your mind?
2: Yes. I tend to design games based on how I want people to feel while playing them. A lot of people, you know, they'll sit down and they'll go, okay, what rules do I want to establish or whatever? No, I sit there and I go, how do I want you to feel while you're playing this game? And the entire game experience is based on how I want you to feel because that's how horror is designed, right? Horror is the only genre in video games where people literally only focus on or they focus on emotions first, and then everything is designed to support that emotion. That's why I think horror is as strong as it is compared often to other genres. It's because it's laser focused on one specific feeling, or at least the the bouquet of feelings, bouquet of feelings that you uh you would have in a horror experience. Most other genres aren't focused on those feelings, so it falls apart. So I knew I wanted to have certain feelings. And so I knew as a result that I would need a sort of strong moral core for the game, or at least a a worldview, a perspective, right? So um, living in poverty, I I was kind of pretty sure that I wanted to, by making a game about fear, or dealing with fear, I should say, making a game dealing with fear, I wanted to make a game that kind of dealt with the emotions of poverty. Um, I wanted to create a lot of anxiety as coming from that direction. So, you know, you have this guy who's, like, forcing you into a job that you don't want. You live in a place that sucks. Like, all these things about the game, all these really tiny details in some ways. And it comes out in conversations in other ways. And I realize that's not exactly morality, but it is, like, all these characters have specific worldviews. Because they have specific worldviews, they have different moralities. Like, you've played the game, right? You you know that I have a bunch of conversation systems in there. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was actually going to be my next question is in a game that has discussions, it, it, opportunities for you to select things that you're saying to to other characters. At the end of the day, it, it it's a very like fatalistic game. Like you're on one trajectory. I mean, as as far as I know, there's just sort of the one arc through it. So it, like it yep. suggests that you as the player have agency in the story, but also you understand as you're playing it that you don't necessarily have agency. Like it, it, it presents yep. it presents those elements that you would see in other games, but but plays out in a so, more like traditional narrative sense at the end of the day.
2: So I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil my own game here, briefly. There is a scene in that game which I think explains my entire ethos for the game. If this is a game about poverty, then this is a game about helplessness. If this is a game about helplessness, then this means you probably don't have the ability to make the choices you want. Your agency is limited in this case by his financial situation um, and his inability to escape it. This is, I mean, this fundamentally is a game about powerlessness. All three protagonists in the game have almost no power at all. Mm-hmm. This is like the opposite of a power fantasy, right? One character can't speak, she has no lines at all. It's That's Birdwatcher. She doesn't say anything. Then there's another character, the assassin you know she has a gun right she has power over life and death in a sense there's one person she kills but you can't choose not to kill that guy the game cannot progress unless you shoot that man and it's a really brutal gory kill because i wanted you to like really feel the shock of what shooting a person is
0: no and it's very effective
2: right every time i watch streams of the game people are like oh my god like no one expects the violence to be that brutal It just did an amazing job on it. But I wanted to make sure that you were forced to do this thing because so many games are like, well, the good moral choice would be not to shoot the guy, Mm -hmm. right? You either shoot or you don't shoot. That's good or that's bad, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Metal Gear Solid's like, oh, you you shot somebody, you're not as good as somebody who didn't shoot somebody. So I wanted to be like, no, 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 you don't get to choose because this character doesn't get to choose. I want to be like, look at this ugliness in the world here. at this person who has to kill someone her name in the game is assassin right Mm. that's all she does she assassinates so like i took away choice because i could have very easily put a choice system in there but I, i wanted to be very clear that you don't have a choice you have to do this terrible thing because i wanted players to i wanted to confront players with that i wanted them to be like There is no easy way out. There is no way to feel good about yourself doing this. You are going to have to brutally murder somebody. That's the way it is. Because it's an ugly game. It's a game about this ugliness. And it's a game about helplessness. And that helplessness leads to ugliness. I didn't want to punish them the way that some games do. Where it's like, oh, you're a bad person for doing this thing that I, you know, made you do. Mm -hmm. Like the white phosphorus moment in in Spec Ops The Line, right? The game, like, makes you do that and then it taunts you for it and it's like, are you taunting me for choosing to play the game? And Paratopic's like more like, no, this is a very ugly game, and this is a game about fe- bad feelings. Like this is not a, a happy game. When you were designing Paratopic, did you feel any sort of sense of responsibility
0: for the moral decisions that were that were going into the game? Because one of my first experiences with a karma or morality system in a game comes from a game called Black and White. And for people who don't remember <laughs> Black and White, it was like um, you, you you were viewing a world from above from the view of God and you were essentially God and you had this avatar on the planet that sort of did your bidding and you could do good or bad things as you were sort of trying to cultivate uh, civilization on this on this world the way the game played out depended on you know if you chose the the morally right thing or the the morally dastardly thing and then that would be represented in the way that your avatar appears on on the planet. I mean, and the game was called Black and White because your decisions were like good or bad. But the interesting thing about that game is it cast you as, as God, right? Like, I think the way a lot of people typically think about morality is that it's passed down from some higher power. But here's a game where you're playing that higher power and the, the definition of good and bad were still coming from somewhere even higher up than yourself. In this case, the game designer. Like the game designer is the one defining what is a good action and what is a bad action in that game, and even though you're playing God in the game, you you still don't get to choose. You know what defines good and bad in that game. It's 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 decided for you. So, you know, as you're approaching paratopic or you know any game design, is that something that comes into your mind that like you are the one deciding for the player what is right and wrong, and then do you think that that has an effect on the on the player? Outside of that game.
2: Hmm. Well, specifically in Peritopic, what I was thinking was when I confronted players with the violence and I didn't let them choose, mm-hmm. I knew I was the one in control of that situation. You know, I don't have total, absolute dictatorial control over that game's design because I worked with two other people who had equal creative say in the game. But, you know, since I did a lot of early planning for it and I laid down the ground rules and stuff, I do have a degree of direction that I, I put that project on. And I knew that we were gonna be the ones in control of that game the whole time, not the audience. Again, the game needed to be about helplessness, so I had to make the audience helpless, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, in in that sense, I did know. And, and for future episodes, if we ever get around to being able to make those, um, I knew exactly where the game was going. Like, I, I mean, I know what, I know what the rest of the game is, right? I know what a lot of those scenes are. I know what the other characters are. I know who you end up playing as. I wanted a game that was very curated from my end, controlling how the player is and behaves and stuff. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I was the one controlling all that. Um, but that's going to depend on the game, right? In a co-op multiplayer online, you know, shooter with loot, I'm probably going to handle morality a bit differently. I'm probably just going to portray players as heroes all the time, and that'll be that. Um, It'll, it's going to depend on what the game is and how I want the player to feel. Um, the next game I'm building, which is turning out really good so far, the outcome is already decided. For a lot of the really small games I'm making, there aren't a lot of systemic decision-making to be had. So it's more like you're just kind of going on a journey. Um, or the decisions you make are intentionally meaningless. And so in this game, um, yeah, actually the decisions you the most important decision that the player character makes happens before the game starts. And then the game itself is just the consequences of those actions playing out. Hmm. So it's not that your choices don't matter. It's that, and I wish I could spoil it, but we haven't announced the game. So I don't, I don't want to talk <laughs> about be, it. That would be right?
0: first to like spoil a game that hasn't even been announced yet. I like
2: it. <laughs> right. Right. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I did tweet about the game. And then somebody saw the tweet and went, that game sounds incredible. I'd like to build it with you. And I said, all right, let's do it. And now we're building that game. So, you know, I mean, that's how I made Paratopic too, right? Like I, I tweeted something along the lines of, I know how to fix the walking sim. I want to play a game where you're a bird watcher in a forest who gets gored to death by an elk man. And then, you know, we made that game. So that's how I make all my games is apparently <laughs> bad tweets. Um, I love it. But yeah, like like for the small games... I'm actually really interested in sort of like ugly feelings and inevitability and stuff like this, Mm -hmm. whereas the bigger the games get that I want to make, I think I tend to allow a little bit more freedom, a little bit more simulation, a little bit more stuff, because ultimately I want players to reflect, right? Video games are sort of empathy generators, so when I want to put you in somebody else's shoes, you don't get as many choices. When I put you in a world, then I want to give you as many choices as possible, and I want those choices to have strong enough feedback that you can sit there and you can go, oh, you know, that makes sense. I did this, and it did this thing to me, and I have thoughts about that, right? And I think the save the child, murder the child dichotomy of Bioshock probably doesn't accomplish that level of self-reflection, but I mean... Yeah, the bigger games I make, self-reflection is more where I want to go. I want to make things that make people think about themselves, learn something about themselves. But, you know, ultimately, sometimes I just want to put you in somebody else's shoes. Uh, I want you to do things that are outside of your comfort zone that you probably wouldn't do yourself. So, you know, in this game, this new game I'm doing, this person has been doing something very bad for a long time. And as a result, there are certain relationships, certain bridges he's already burned, and he can never unburn those bridges. And you start the game having already burned those bridges. I don't want to do the, you know, the Spec Ops thing of being like, ah, you player, you're a bad person for doing something outside of your control. It's like, no, no, no. You just you just get to inhabit somebody else's head for a while and be that person.
0: I guess maybe on that note, how do you think that the approach to game design or, or karma systems in game design could be improved to to give players a better sense of their their impact in these worlds. Like like if, if you were just gonna give like some piece of like I guess like blanket advice to the industry, like what, what's something that you would say to 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 make these systems more meaningful in
2: games? Honestly, I think the Witcher's like I said, the Witcher is is doing it right. They are making it all character driven. In general, every interaction you have with human beings is an emotional one. Every impression you leave on a person is one that they're going to feel about some way, Mm -hmm. right? So I would like to see more decisions in games that look at the emotional fallout of every interaction you have. Rather than an invisible meter that sort of is the super abstract version of a religious entity <laughs> right you know there's hundreds of billions of religions out there um you know that all have slightly different paradigms but most of them all have this idea that there's some god or something that is going to judge you later mm-hmm. right like whether it's christianity islam judaism buddhism whatever there's always some sort of karmic system or some judge or whatever that determines what you are and so that's how a lot of games do it And I don't know if games are doing that because it's tied to religion or if that's just the easy way to do it programmatically, so to speak. I I don't know why people have made that decision, but I noticed that it lines up with how a lot of religions handle Mm -hmm. morality. But in most of our interactions on a day-to-day basis, it's more about emotions, right? If I go to McDonald's and I yell at the person at the counter, sure, God may be like, hey, you know, now that you've died and have, you know, come to the afterlife, uh, you were a bad person for yelling at that service worker. That's totally a thing, but in my actual life here and now, if I yell at a service worker, that person's going to have a feeling and that feeling's going to impact their day. And if I run across that person again, that person may have thoughts about me and Mm -hmm. who I am. So I'd like to see more moral systems that are very character-driven, very human-driven It's more about the emotions of what's happening than, oh, yeah, you get the blue power if you, you know, chose the good option and you get the red power if you chose the bad option. Um, I'd like to sort of decouple it from rewards and make it more just about the emotions of the thing. And so the decisions you make are really about the emotions you want to experience in the rest of the game.
1: I think that by asking players to make that choice, you're asking your player to role play in a certain sense, no matter what genre of game you're playing. And I think D and D had the right idea. Where if you're picking your character, decide you know this isn't this character's first day in this world. So what's their background? Are they are they good? Are they evil? Or somewhere in between? Uh, you get rewarded for playing that character. And I think most video games are the same way. There's a character that the world has already established in most cases, unless you're playing something where you're just going in as a blank canvas. Which I have trouble thinking of too many games where you don't already have a backstory of some type.
2: You're um, born
1: in he, Fallout 3. It's true. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you, you could just be, you know, they do give you the sense that you could just be a dick the whole time. So I guess that would work. But yeah, I like the idea of systems rewarding you for playing your role. What I would like to see ultimately is a system that rewards player growth on that level as well. Uh, You start out with one set of beliefs because the game has set these up and you are able to change your mind or uh, take different actions going forward because the game was able to influence you in a way and somehow reward that I think would be really interesting. Um, But I feel like that's very, uh, I don't know, that's kind of existential right there. I I have no idea what that would look like. This This is where we
0: get into, Steve brings up procedural generation for the millionth time. I think yeah. A lot of, I think a lot AI. of this stuff. I think I think for a lot of these systems, you know, I think the big problem for me with um, morality systems is that they they always just feel so gamey. Like it always just feels like a, exactly. another game system. And I think as games move forward, um, you know, as it evolves as a medium, I think the the greater illusion that you can create that what you're seeing is some sort of like true reality, like the the I don't know. I, to me like I think that's the that will make a much cooler experience, a much more rewarding experience. But I don't know how you do that in the traditional storytelling methods that we've established so far. Like we say it on this show a lot of times, like video games are still so interested in telling stories the way that books and movies tell stories even though they have the capability to to do and be something completely different. And the only way I see around that is to like procedurally generate the way that People respond to you. It it seems. I mean, anything else seems like so difficult to curate, at least on a very big scale. Like if we're talking about making something like Skyrim a true sort of like simulated experience, it 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 seems unreasonable to expect, you know, a writer to you know predict every single action a player would come up with without having some sort of machine
2: learning be a part of that. I have some friends who are making procedural narrative stuff and they're really excited about it it sounds amazing i wanted to talk more to a bunch of my friends at gdc about this but you know schedules being what they were that's always really hard to do um but i asked one of them a question which was if i have a character or if i have two characters who know something is going to happen but don't want to talk about that thing and just decide to spend time together how do i how do i procedurally generate that how do I procedurally generate subtext, mm-hmm. right? When a character is talking about one thing but actually means something else, how do we get into creating that? And it was like, oh, we need to, we need more time for this. So let's have this conversation later. So I actually didn't get my answer to that, which I was hoping for. But to me, that's the biggest barrier to making interesting procedural narrative, because mm-hmm. like what I see a lot of is like, here is player name. Player name was born in player name yep. town, you know, and you, you kind of go through that. It's the Mad Libs version of procedural generation. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm like, okay, but how do I have the character say, find out that they're going to die from leukemia and decide that they want to go catch fireflies with a close friend of theirs one evening before they have to go to the hospital or something. Mm-hmm. Right. And they don't want to tell their friend that they've just been diagnosed with a you know life-shattering illness, right? How do you how do you procedurally generate that? How do you how do you yeah. come up with a character who wants things they're not saying? And that I don't know yet. It's hard. It, but it's to hard me, because,
0: if we can crack it, well, I, I think it's hard because we've we've traditionally like honored the author, right? Like we we've put so much emphasis on the person that authors a piece of work. I've probably talked about it on this show before. I think in the future, what we'll see is not the person who's like good at writing stories, but the person who's good at writing the program. That's good at writing stories. You know what I mean? Like it's going to be, it's going to be a shift in the way that we, that we look at artists. It's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely going to take, I don't think we're there yet. I think that's why so much of this is so difficult to do is that we're working in a system Where, you know, the the best storytelling, the best way to tell stories is the way that we've done it for so very, very long. And video games are so new that we're, you know, it's still in its infancy. So we're still trying to figure these things out. But
2: I just, I just. Yeah, storytelling is an art we've had, you know, 10,000 years to practice, right? And
0: and I just think that a thousand years from now assuming that we haven't like bombed ourselves into oblivion and assuming that video games are are still a thing or like interactive interactive storytelling is still a thing like the 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 people the way that we honor the artist is going to change like the the people that we look at as artists is going to be a very different thing than it was you know than it is today or it was a thousand years ago
2: i think it'll be expanded much in the same way that it way way back in the day people thought novels were bad right but plays were mm-hmm. great now we think of novelists and playwrights as great. So I mean, I think it'll be expanded. I don't think it'll necessarily be. I don't think anything will ever be subtracted from the definition of art. Only added to it.
0: Oh yeah, and and I guess that's that's not my point either. I'm not trying to say like
2: that. We'll look back on it and be
0: like, oh, those you know these these people were so primitive and so and so bad. But a hey, the the way for creating art will be so will be so much different. Assuming, I mean, I could be totally wrong. Maybe, maybe my idea for a video game—you know, like I—I I like the idea of a, of a like a true living, breathing world in a video game. And I don't think that that's possible with with having off like authored content. I think it has to be, it has to come from some sort of like machine learning or algorithmic learning, whatever it is, to to truly create that like simulated experience that I want from a video game. But maybe that's not what everybody wants, and maybe my ideas are are crazy yesterday was four yesterday was four twenty, and i feel like i I still have a contact high from yesterday (laughs) (laughs) sure
2: contact high. i I mean i I think fundamentally the idea behind like the holodeck right is that you could just go into a world and then every single npc in the world has like a fully realized living breathing Mm -hmm. person there is literally no way to make that without computer aid yeah like unless you somehow were able to just duplicate billion different humans yeah Yeah, like it's just there have to be limits somewhere or because or we can't generate like i can't sit there and fully generate another mm -hmm. human being you know i can't just write every possible thought a person would have i would literally die before i could finish one person i think that's i think that's how it works
0: i think i think we all die as we finish the story for one person (laughs) yeah fair um this is also how skynet gets made jared i'll just all comes back i'll just fit it in there for you because i know you've been
1: thinking it stay Um, after the podcast to listen to my podcast all about ai conspiracies
0: (laughs) all right let's move along to some of our listener emails again if you have any questions or comments about morality systems and games or any of our previous topics you can always email us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on twitter before we jump into some of our listener emails, I just want to mention that we are going to be giving away some books from our past guest, Dr. Anthony Bean. He wrote the book, The Psychology of Zelda, Linking Our World to the Legend of Zelda series. So if that's something you're interested in getting your hands on, we actually have a couple of copies to give away, but we're not giving them away for free. You got to put in some work. Uh, we want you. Labor. We want labor. We content demand We demand free labor. <laughs> free content. <laughs> uh No, it, it's really it's real simple. It, it's so easy you could do it in in ten seconds. All you got to do is email us or reach out to us on Twitter and let us know your favorite karma or morality system from a video game, and let us know why it's your favorite. And then uh from anybody who responds to us, we'll we'll pick out two random people, we'll reach out to you and get your uh, address information, all that stuff. But we'll we'll mail out the book. Do people want us to sign a book? I don't think people care about that, right? No,
1: but it's us, no. <laughs>
0: Maybe they do. I like to think that there's someone out there who's like, yeah, could you sign my book? <laughs> sign somebody else's book? Seems yeah, weird. sure. I mean, they, if they're listening to our show, maybe they care enough about our signatures. All right, I promise. I'll, I'll I include promise, a business card. All right, here, here's my promise to you. If you win one of these books, we will not sign it. There's, there's the guarantee. We will not mark your book in any way. It will be mailed to you in perfect condition. <laughs> That's a
1: guarantee. T, you can count on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Jared, let's look at let's look at some of the uh, the feedback we've received on some of our older episodes.
1: What do we got? Yeah, one of our uh, most moral listeners, Mr. Mischievous okay, on Twitter, there it is. wrote there it is. again. He said, regarding episode 43, one of my favorite fighting games was Bushido Blade on PlayStation. They didn't have health bars visible, and certain attacks would disable limbs or slow your opponent down. This did a lot to cure me of my button-mashing ways and play defensively. 10 out of 10 episode. Aw, oh, thank you, Doc. Mr. Mischievous, almost called him Doctor Mischievous. Oh, maybe soon. No, who knows? who he, knows? I mean, I think if you if he sends enough comments, he will send we'll Gets an honorary doctorate.
0: An honorary doctorate
1: from a fake podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, and specifically, we in that episode we're talking about HP and, and health in games, right? Or healing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting example. Of Bushido Blade. I, I know people have been talking about that game again since Sakiro came out. And how the sword plays sort of reminded them of that.
0: This message made me think of Monster Hunter, a game that doesn't have an HP bar for the enemies. You just learn over time, kind of about how much, uh, you know, how many hits it takes to bring an enemy down, and you you start to learn the behaviors of enemies as they end up with lower health. We didn't bring up Monster Hunter in that in that episode at all, but that is an interesting one about uh, you know w- where the they obfuscate the enemy's HP to just, I don't know, I guess it kind of creates more of a a sense of, like, actually living in that world, being in that world, to not have that that element um, made readily available to you as the player.
1: You know what else did that? Final Fantasy VII. You didn't really see the um, total HP of some of, at least the bosses, and uh, you kind of just had to do enough damage until they died i think there might have been an ability that one of the characters had where they could like analyze the the enemy and you could find out like its weaknesses and its hp but i don't think you could just see it normally
0: that's an interesting way to to approach that that style of design right like as a as a as a person i sort of have a sense of how how healthy i am i'm i'm sort of aware of my capabilities for the most part how many hps do you have today (laughs) you know again it's hard to quantify it in that way but um but I have a sense like could I climb my back wall I probably could <laughs> I don't know I mean I guess it's been <laughs> probably 30 pounds since the last time I tried to climb a wall but <laughs> 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 you know what I mean like I, I have a sense that I could do I could do something like that but I I don't have a good sense of how other you know how other people would you know how they feel or or, or their capabilities so it is interesting that these game examples like Bushido Blade mentioned here Monster Hunter or yeah even like Final Fantasy don't present you with that information up front i don't know interesting thank you for that's a good feedback so thank you for that mr mischievous on twitter uh is that it jared that's it for feedback today cool again you can always send us your emails at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on twitter and definitely do it if you want to get one of those books free books free books good it's good for you and that's going to do it for this episode before we get out of here i want to thank our guest doc burford doc Thank you so much for being here, man. How can people keep up with your work? Where can they find your video game? Lay all the details on them.
2: Well, Thanks for having me. You can generally find me at DocSquitty on Twitter. Honestly, that's the best place to get a hold of me. There's also my blog, The Stomp, which is, well, it's Stomp, but it would have cost me $20,000 to buy that URL. So um, it ended up being The Stomp, T-H-E-S-T-O dot M-P. That's pretty good. Yeah. Wait, what is the .mp? What? Uh, Where does that?
0: What does that actually belong to?
2: I do not remember. I I wanted just sto.mp, but that was like literally. I think it was like twenty five thousand dollars. Jeez. And then like if you're four letters, it's much cheaper. So I was like, all right, I'll do five. I got dust on. <laughs>
1: uh, um. To answer your question, Steve, it is the top level domain for Northern Mariana Islands.
2: Of course. How did I so not there know? You go. That?
0: i should have i should have i should have known it's so <laughs>
2: obvious <laughs> yeah it was i was trying to domain hack for a really long time and just come up with some sort of cool word and i came up with like hundreds of words and all of them were either taken or not possible and i finally came up with something.
0: oh you did it you did it the right way um a while back i was doing a youtube channel doing some movie reviews and we ran into that same problem yeah. I was like all right what do we what do we call our show and everything we looked up was already taken. So eventually rather than going like, okay, you know, like let's just try a lot of little words, instead we just strung together the most incomprehensible, like long collection of words that we could find, just to guarantee it did not exist anywhere else on the internet. And that's what we used. But looking back on it, it was the the dumbest thing we could have ever done. Right. But <laughs> for, right. for those interested, yeah. it was a Dr. Film psychedelic mustache review emporium. It's a tongue it right <laughs> It's a mouthful.
2: <laughs> that definitely is so yeah, um Doc Squiddy on Twitter or um the stomp. And where can keep- we where can people find Paratopic? Um Itch itch.io. Just Google Paratopic, you'll find <laughs> it. Um we make more money getting it from Itch. Everyone who buys from Itch also gets a Steam code, so totally worth it as opposed to just buying on Why Steam. Yeah.
1: Support your creators.
2: And like I said, and and for
0: anyone listening, at least go go check it out, and we'll we'll post a link on our Twitter and make sure and help you get the word out there for the game, because it is it is very, um, like I said, captivating from a visual sense and a a interesting addition into the 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 walking sim pantheon for sure.
2: It's it's forty five minutes long and it costs less than like a Wendy's value meal, so <laughs> I feel like it's. So like it's worth That's, it. Wendy's value meals is the uh, the metric I use
0: when making all of my purchasing decisions. <laughs> 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 Excellent. Follow Doc Squiddy on Twitter. Check out the sto and uh, check out Paratopic. That's going to do it for the episode. As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the Gamer on Twitter.
1: And I'm at Jared Brunner.
0: We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games not just today but for the last two years we we really do appreciate it this has been another great episode of game breaking feature remember it's okay to disagree just don't be a dick about it all right bye guys thank you guys